Stand by. Stand by. You have entered a locked orbit with Precinct Omega. Your data has been lodged and recorded. You have one message. Playing message from Precinct Omega. It's Friday the 8th of October. My name is Roby Jenkins. And my name is Bernard. And here is the news. Dust Studios no longer exists. Um, and, and that's all I'm going to present for news this week. Uh, you may be asking yourselves, what's Dust Studios? Why should I care? Why is this news? And there's so much to pack in to the question of who are, were Dust Studios, why their disappearance from the world of miniatures wargaming is interesting, questionably important, um, and, and there's so many lessons to pull out of their experience and their mistakes and their successes and where dust even came from. So let's just cut away from the news and come back and we will do a dissection on this latest story. first thing I need to say is that this is my first unscripted news episode, so bear with me as I try and get myself through it. There might be a certain amount of cutting and chopping as we go. But I'm also going to try and keep this short because people have said my podcasts are a bit too long to consume easily, so we're going to keep this quite boiled down. Let's go through dust. Okay. First thing we need to talk about is what is dust, where does it come from? So dust is a setting, an intellectual property, it is a pseudo-historical alternate history diesel punk sci-fi setting created by a chap called Paolo Parente. Now Paolo is an artist of some renown and great expertise, he has been painting in the sci-fi fantasy field for decades, he's painted for companies like Wizards of the Coast for Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering. He's painted for Rackham Games. Uh, he's painted for Fantasy Flight Games. He's done all kinds of stuff and he created his own comic book series called Dust. And it was set in an alternative vision of World War II that brought in aliens and strange forces and uh, walking tanks and energy weapons and all kinds of good, crunchy, pulpy, sci-fi, dieselpunk stuff. And it was quite an appealing intellectual property, apparently, to a lot of people. And, I, I mean, I can see why. Of course I can. There's a lot to, to pull out of that possibility. And we will look in more detail at the setting towards the end of this, but let's first go through a timeline of what happened with this. So first, Paolo, working on his own as a more or less independent publisher, produced a series of comic books. So much, so so. Uh, and Paolo, as far as I can tell, whether, whether this was a friend or a business associate or what, he came into contact with a guy called Olivier, uh, and I will try and pronounce his surname correctly, uh, Zamifrescu. So Olivier Zamifrescu is a, a, a French guy, I believe, Paolo's Italian, um, 
and they became collaborators for quite a long time. And Olivier developed a game based on the Dust setting. Um, now, whether Olivier had already developed the game and he thought the Dust setting was a really good thing to push it, or whether he was inspired by the Dust setting to write the game, I have no idea. Either way, Olivier created a game that integrated with Paolo's intellectual property vision for Dust. They took that game to Rackham Games, sometime around the early 2000s, we're not completely sure. Rackham loved the game and they liked the setting, but Rackham, French company as was, they were very cautious about the idea of producing a game that had a faction that was even Nazi adjacent. And you can kind of understand that. They sold into uh, a market that was very sensitive to the history of the Second World War. And although the Dust setting actually doesn't include a Nazi faction, it does include a totalitarian German faction that is post-Nazi. So it's definitely got far-right close associations, okay? So uh, Rackham were a bit cautious about that, but they liked the game concept. They liked the look, the aesthetic of the setting, but they just wanted to do something different with it. So what happened was a game called AT43. Now cut, cut, cut for a second, because let's put AT43 to one side and come back to it in a minute. So we are in around 2006, 2007 here. So Paolo and Olivier have gone to Rackham, they've sold the concept of the game and it's turned into 8043, but Dust, as an intellectual property, is still kicking around. And Paolo is keen to be making more money out of this IP. In comes Fantasy Flight Games. Now, again, whether they've already got a game and the IP fits, or whether Paolo brings them the IP, they like the IP and they develop a game to fit it, I don't know. But regardless, a game called Dust is released in 2007. It uses Paolo's IP for the aesthetic and the look of the game, but it is definitely not a miniatures game. The original 2007 Dust game from Fantasy Flight Games is basically Risk, but better. Uh, you can read the reviews yourself on Board Game Geek. Um, it looks very risk-like, uh, it's got a lot more mechanics to it, it's got a lot more subtlety, but it is basically an Ameritrash conquest game, okay? But it meant that the Dust property was now out there in the gaming field coming to the attention of wargame-adjacent folk and Fantasy Flight were invested. Good. Are we up to date with where Dust is? Yes, great. Let's go back to 8043 because meanwhile, 8043 is gaining some traction, some interest. Fans are really getting into this game. It aesthetically looks great. They've got Karl Kapinski on board as the principal artist. Paolo is behind him as the art director on the project. And Olivier is the principal developer, I believe. Anyway, regardless, the game starts to grow. It starts to gather additional uh, factions. And their approach is quite interesting because 8043 was released as a uh, pre-painted, pre-assembled product. So in other words, they, they cut away from the traditional games workshop model of miniatures wargaming in which the building and the painting of the miniatures was perceived as part of the hobby to create a completely out-of-the-box experience. The idea was that you could open up a box of the AT-43 starter set, Operation Damocles as I think it was called, you could have two forces, all the rules, all the terrain, all the tiles, 
already assembled, already painted, stick it on the table and get going. And in some respects, it was super successful and it was very popular. And in other respects, not so much because what Rackham kind of missed was that process of building miniatures and building vehicles and painting them yourself was part of the appeal. Now, to their credit, that didn't mean that you couldn't paint those miniatures. You absolutely could, and I own several, and I have, and they're good fun. They're not great. The mechs are really good. The, the infantry is so-so. Um, but they're really interesting designs, and you absolutely can paint them. But as a pre-paint concept, it, what it meant was it front-loaded a lot of the cost. So not only did they have to manufacture these things, but they also had to manufacture them in such a way that they could be assembled, that they could be painted, and they could then be packaged without any of that assembly and painting being disrupted. And one of the consequences of that was not only was it very expensive, but they also had to compromise on some of the materials, producing miniatures that, that weren't uh, up to necessarily the same sort of quality of presentation as was expected by traditional tabletop miniatures war games. Nevertheless, it was doing okay. It was, however, very expensive for Rackham to front load all of those costs. Eventually, Rackham hit a wall. Now, whether it was 8043 and all that front loading, difficult to say. The game that really saw them out was a game called Confrontation. It had been the game that really launched them onto the scene. It had gone away, it had become something of a legend amongst miniature wargamers for the quality of the miniatures that they had produced. They thought, great, let's bring it back. But for some reason they decided to ditch all of the quality that had made it a legend and bring it back purely as a skirmish game with the same kind of pre-painted low-quality miniatures that they were already producing for 8043. And everybody who'd been excited about confrontation coming back took a look at the quality of the miniatures and went, why would I do that? As a result, it was a disastrous, very expensive flop, and it basically saw Rackham into the ground. 8043 rapidly followed. However, what happens when a company like Rackham that owns or controls these intellectual properties goes down is that the sharks start to circle and people become very interested in those intellectual properties and what can be done with them. FFG, of course, was already associated with Paolo, with Olivier. They knew the concept, they knew the idea. They were nothing like as worried about the associations of the game. World War II games, very popular in the United States. They could see a lot of potential in it. So they jumped on board, but instead of taking the AT43 intellectual property, they just took the machinery that made the miniatures and the bases and the supporting stuff, took it away and rejigged it for Paolo's original vision. That was Dust. They then produced a game called Dust Tactics. So their original game was Dust, which was the board game that was risk-like, and then they produced a supporting game called Dust Tactics, taking the aesthetic, the intellectual property that Paolo had developed, and creating this new game. I say new in inverted commas because the game was basically AT43. It was the same concept, it was 90% the same rules, it was just a completely new set of miniatures, rewritten. Great implementation of the fact that you can't copyright game rules. Regardless, the copyright was in the ether. Rackham Entertainment was no longer a thing, and there was nobody to challenge FFG. 
So they went heavy down on dust tactics. This was, let me check my notes. Yeah, well, in 2011, 2010 was when Rackham went down. 2011 was when Dust Tactics came out of Fantasy Flight Games. There was a good, strong response to Dust Tactics, but part of that response came from the miniatures wargaming world. Now, up to this point, Fantasy Flight had not really dealt with miniatures wargaming in any form or shape whatsoever. They didn't have that experience, didn't really have contact with that community. They got it with Dust Tactics, and what that community said was, well, we love the miniatures, that game's not really up our street. Can we have a proper miniatures war game? And as a result, Fantasy Flight had a look at what it would cost to produce a miniatures war game and realised that because they were already making the miniatures, it was going to be very low cost to produce an accompanying war game to play the miniatures in a more traditional miniatures war game style. And that game was modestly successful. I actually have a copy right here. This is my own copy of Dust Warfare. If you're watching the YouTube video, you can see it. Um, if you're on the Podbean uh, podcast, sorry, uh, you'll have to watch the YouTube to see that copy. But uh, Dust Warfare was written by uh, Andy Chambers and Mac Martin. Now, I don't know if you know those names. Andy Chambers was uh, Straight Out Games Workshop. He was the principal designer behind the seminal Warhammer 40,000 third edition that launched it into the form that we basically have today. Mac, meanwhile, was a podcaster um, who was uh, an enthusiast and amateur designer who went out to become a professional designer, did a degree in game design, and Dust Warfare, I think, was his first professional job. I vaguely know Mac through social media. Um, it was an excellent game. That's why it's still on my bookshelf now. It, it is a really classic piece of miniatures wargame design when a designer is given a pre-existing set of miniatures, a pre-existing range with an existing intellectual property, how you then take that and interpret that into something that is going to be familiar, easy to access, and still capture something of the essence of the concept it's all there in Dust Warfare. It, it really is quite an excellent piece of work. I, I don't know how the work was divided between Andy and Mac, whether one started and one finished. Andy's got his name on the front cover because at the time he was a name to, to conjure with. He was also the author of the Starship Troopers game that Mongoose Publishing released and is widely considered one of the best tabletop miniatures sci-fi battle games ever written, even though it, as, as a commercial adventure it crashed and burned uh, astonishingly quickly. So Andy was a big name to conjure with, Mac was fairly new to the market but he was the inside guy at Fantasy Flight at the time and Andy was like the uh, the pro from Dover brought in outside to write. Um, so Dust Warfare, Dust Tactics, sitting very happily at FFG, selling quite well with big plans for new products to be released but then in 20 I'm going to get this right, 2014, FFG started talking to Games Workshop about licensing Games Workshop's intellectual property into a range of board games and roleplay games. And it was out of this that games like Realm of Chaos um, and um, Dark Heresy were eventually to come. Uh, Dark Heresy, of course, was produced in-house by Games Workshop, but then licensed to Fantasy Flight, who then developed it further and produce the follow-up games. 
Thing is, now, I have no official insight into this, but my understanding, having looked at stuff that surrounded this, was that Games Workshop, when they agreed that license, brought with it quite a heavy condition. And that condition was that FFG stay the hell away from miniatures games. And FFG looked at the value of the license, looked at the value of the licenses they already had, and went, yeah, okay. And as a result, dust tactics and dust warfare were killed. That was the end of that. Um, there was no way for them to continue and to continue having a license agreement with Games Workshop of that nature. Now, some of you may now be thinking, but FFG went on to produce the X-Wing miniatures game and then Star Wars Legion. Yes, they did, after their licensing agreement with Games Workshop had lapsed. So we're in 2014. At this point, Games Workshop has imposed their licensing agreements on FFG. FFG has ended their license with Dust, whatever that was to look like, uh, and all of a sudden Dust Warfare and Dust Tactics are in the air. First people to step in is Modifius Entertainment, but they're not interested in a miniatures game at this time, but they are interested in the popularity of the intellectual property. And they jump in and propose a roleplay game based on Paolo's IP. That happens. It's called uh, Dust Adventures, if I remember rightly. Um, the hard copies are completely sold out. They are no longer available, um, but you can still get the PDF, I believe, from Modifius Entertainment. Given that, as I started this news item, Dust Studios is gone. It is no more. It has been dissolved. I don't know how long that will be available. So if you're interested in the Dust intellectual property, you want to get hold of it, it's available right now from Modifius Entertainment's website, Dust Adventures, as a PDF. If I remember rightly, it's like £5. It's big time discounted. So grab it while you can. Uh, no promises it'll be around forever. So the important thing to take away from that is that Modifius and others still saw value to the gamer market of the Dust intellectual property. But there was nobody else interested in picking up the miniatures range, nobody else interested in developing Dust Tactics, and zero interest in Dust Warfare, commercially speaking. But there was still a big fan base. There was still a lot of enthusiasm for the aesthetic and for the setting that Paolo had created, and lots of people who'd poured a lot of money into the miniatures, who wanted to keep playing with them. So Paolo made the big decision to create Dust Games. So Dust Studio, up to this point, as far as I get it, was basically, it was a company created by Paolo to own the intellectual property rights of Dust. Now, I haven't been able to dig into the property and company background of Dust Studio, so I don't know what sort of company it was, I don't know what kind of ownership scheme it was set un under or how many directors it had. But ultimately, Dust Studio was created to act as the official owner in the market of Paolo's intellectual property. So in response to this lack of interest in continuing the miniatures development, Dust Studios created Dust Games. And Dust Games wasn't, as far as I can tell, a company in its own right in any way. It was just a trading name of Dust Studios to continue producing and marketing the miniatures range and the miniatures game of Dust Tactics. And it was reframed as Dust 1947. 
and I, that was a good call. I think it was a, a refocusing because that word dust didn't really carry anything for it, but once you stick 1947 on it, people get a sense of time, they get a sense of place, and they instantly get this idea that this is World War II, but not as we know it. And you've seen exactly the same thing in Conflict 47, which uses even exactly the same year. And I will look at the other games doing very similar things towards the end of this episode. So although I said there wasn't any interest in anybody else picking up the miniatures range en masse, that doesn't mean there wasn't more interest in the Dust property. I mentioned Modifius Entertainment, but far more interesting was the interest that Battlefront showed. Now, Battlefront was, or is, I should say, the company behind Flames of War, and they were talking about 2014. In 2014, Flames of War had crested its max popularity and was kind of starting to wane. Battlefront were looking for something to boost their continued significance and keep Flames of War and, and their other uh, industry interests pushing forwards, and they saw Dust as a real possibility. Now, of course, Dust was a new scale, new materials, new setting, and they weren't willing to take on Dust wholesale as a property and develop it independently and just paying licensing fees. But what they were prepared to do was to offer themselves as a central distributor for the Dust products. But that left a lot of emphasis on Paolo and Dust Studios to work with the manufacturers in China to keep creating and developing and designing the game. So they were taking on a lot of those front costs, only passing on the products to Battlefront and their distribution network once the products were ready. In any case, a Kickstarter happened. And again, I mean, I've talked in the past about the relationship between Kickstarter and companies that have have lost a lead position in the market, or companies that are trying to gain a lead position in the market. Um, how Privateer Press have used Kickstarters, how Mantic Games has used Kickstarters, and this was then Battlefront using a Kickstarter. And it's extremely unclear who was actually running the Kickstarter, whether it was Dust Studios or Battlefront, or whether it was supposed to be a collaboration between the two. Uh, the Kickstarter ran in 2014, and as far as I can tell, it did fulfill in its entirety in 2016. So it took a little over two years to fulfill, and I think anybody who's got any experience with Kickstarter, particularly a big, ambitious, complex, multi-country projects, would probably go, yeah, that's about right. But back in 2014, we didn't have that experience yet. We expected faster, more efficient, less accident-prone fulfillment, especially from a company that had a well-established distribution network like Battlefront. And in any case, it was a little bit of a mess. As I say, as far as I can tell, it has fulfilled, but it was a little bit of a back and forth. So at one point, Pablo went on record as blaming Battlefront for basically not paying Dust Games' upfront fees, their costs. And what he alleged was that basically Dust Games had agreed 
to foot the bill for all of the production costs, design, development, manufacture of all of the miniatures associated with the Kickstarter. On the understanding that they would get paid that fee, plus their cut from the Kickstarter money before shipping those products to Battlefront to then be distributed to the backers with Battlefront keeping the remainder of the Kickstarter fees. That's my simplest interpretation of the information that I was given. Obviously I don't know what the legal agreement was between the two companies at that time, but Paolo's allegation was basically that Battlefront weren't keeping up their end of the deal, that they were offering them the Kickstarter cut but weren't paying their production fees. So Dust Studios, from their perspective, weren't getting the money back that they had invested in developing the game's miniatures in the first place. So what they did was withhold the products until Battlefront met what they saw as their end of the bargain. Battlefront never went on record, as far as I can tell, about that dispute. I've had a bit of a dig back through the updates on the Kickstarter, and there's not a lot to say. Um, basically, people talked about there being problems and delays and, and hold-ups, but didn't go into the details of any legal disagreement that was going on. Regardless, in the end, the Kickstarter was fulfilled, but Battlefront walked away from the partnership completely and had nothing further to do with Dust or the Dust intellectual property. For them, it had not been a positive experience. Paolo, however, continued. And at that point, Dust kind of made this transition into a new kind of miniatures game product that I've not seen anybody else do in quite the same way. So we talked right at the beginning about how 8043 was created as this pre-painted, pre-assembled, out-of-the-box product. Well, Paolo kind of took that idea and turned it up to 11, with most new Dust products being released as pre-assembled and pre-painted, but not just that, but high quality content, high quality plastic, high quality production standards, high quality pre-painting standards. You know, whoever he had in China, in the Far East, doing the hand painting of these manufactured products, they were doing a very good job. You know, they looked great out of the box, but oh my word, they were expensive. So just to give you the broadest example, Eventually, under pressure from customers, Paolo not only released these pre-assembled, pre-painted versions, but also unpainted, unassembled versions. And you could buy either of them on the website. Generally, the, the high-end boutique version was released first, and then an unpainted version was released a little bit later, which seems like a strange way around for it. I'm sure you agree, but it was what they decided to do. And if you take one of the large mechs, so uh, one of these walking tank miniatures that was released, if you were to buy the unpainted, unassembled version, it would be about, let's say, $50. You know, expensive, but you're thinking this is a high quality miniature, it's comparable to the costs of similar miniatures from other companies. Fair enough. The boutique pre-assembled, pre-painted version was more like $150. So, I'm not saying that that wasn't a fair price for it, whatever was being paid to build and paint these miniatures, 
but it was clearly pitching at a very different kind of customer to those who are usually buying tabletop miniatures games. You know, we don't mind forking out a large amount of money for a particularly spectacular model. I will not deny that. But we do that with the assumption that we're going to get a lot of time out of the, you know, cutting the, the, the sprues off or prepping the model and assembling it and posing it and making the bases and planning the paint scheme and painting and presenting it and getting that rush of feedback from our community who go, wow, that's fantastic. If you just pay up front for that, you get none of that experience. All you get is a box with a model in it. It comes out, goes on the table, and now you're playing. Which is great if you are very cash rich and very time poor, and yet you still want to participate in this hobby. I just don't think there are that many people who are that into it who wouldn't just spend that money on commission paint jobs. But regardless, regardless, for whatever my anticipation or, or, or my expectation is of that business model, the business continued. You know, Dust Games kept operating. Dust 1947 was a game. Now, new to me, I, I've literally just discovered in researching for this episode, they did create a game called Dust 1947 Battlefield. I think that's what it was called. So Dust 1947 was basically Dust Tactics. So for Dust Tactics you had a battle mat um, that had squares drawn on it. It looks a lot like the Dead Zone arrangement but with a very much more basic approach to, to movement and cover and stuff. So you didn't have tape measures um, and the dice mechanics were pretty basic and it was a classic. Units came with cards that had their stats on you assembled your army and it, it, it was basically a complicated board game okay it, and i don't mean to talk it down it was very engaging it was very interesting but it it didn't speak to people like me it wasn't a miniatures war game in that sense dust warfare that was a miniatures war game and that appealed so eventually paolo dust studios developed dust 1947 battlefield it was released as a pdf it was well received by the community but i gotta say I'd never heard of it. I didn't even know it existed. So their marketing of that as an option around the game was not strong. Um, and it certainly never seemed to appear as, as a box set or as a book or anything like that. It was a, it was a PDF. I don't even know if it was in, in proper distribution or just as a beta. It was out there though. They were trying to address that. Um, but it didn't really go anywhere. And basically the whole business model was ripe to be smacked by a scenario like we've just been through. You know, we had COVID-19, we had this massive disruption to the global distribution systems, huge disruption in China, and Dust relied upon China as their principal manufacturing base. And they simply couldn't continue to develop and ship products and all of their distributors around the world basically went, nah. And so at the end of September, Paolo made an announcement that Dust Studios was being wound up. So, is that the end for Dust 1947? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think as a, as a product line for the miniatures, for the tanks, it's dead. It's, it, it's gone. I, I don't see anybody wanting to step in and pick that up right now. That's just not going to happen. 
Um, I think Dust, if Dust Studios is gone, if it's been dissolved, wound up, whatever it is, then obviously the intellectual property reverts to the owner who licensed it licensed it to the company so it's now Paolo's property so whether he's going to develop that any further I don't know whether Modifius will continue to release uh, Dust Adventures paying Paolo directly rather than Dust Studios I don't know I have no idea um, my gut is that it's done its time and the reason I would say that is because it's not the only game operating within this aesthetic field. You know, the alternate World War II thing, it's a well-established trope. You know, I've already mentioned Conflict 47, but there are other games working in the same area, and that's just probably the most popular. We've got Achtung Thulu, which is also from Modifius, so whether they want to explore that as well as Dust Adventures, highly questionable. We've got Secrets of the Third Reich, which from uh, West End Games, I think I've got that right. Um, you know, and although that is a bit of a quiet intellectual property right now, it's definitely not gone away and it's still kicking around. This idea of an alternate World War II, you know, it's been explored in digital games by games like Wolfenstein, and there's a lot of interest in it, but whether a standalone property like Dust has the chops to really make its mark and, and be the choice of alternate Second World War without a big business behind it, I'm, I'm not sure that it, it really does. And I have to say one of the things that I think is going to let, has let down the dust property and is is going to increasingly be seen as putting it behind other approaches is probably Paolo's treatment of women within the IP. Um, because there are a lot of women in dust uh, and the property and you know I've got no objection to seeing women featured more prominently in miniatures wargames and having a more diverse approach to miniatures wargaming. Um, as you know, I'm a big supporter of companies like Bad Squiddo, I've just backed their Kickstarter, um, and you know I'm excited to see more female miniatures on the tabletop. But there's miniatures, and there's miniatures. Dust, from its very inception, has been an intellectual property that treated its female characters primarily as opportunities for cheesecake art. You know, there were a lot of tight t-shirts and large busts and improbably narrow waists and knock-kneed bazooka-holding poses. Um, there's even a whole faction which seems to be entirely populated by Japanese schoolgirls. I am not joking. I wish I were. So I think at its initial inception back in 2007 I think we could still get away with that as a society. Miniatures Wargaming was still seen as a very masculine undertaking. Um, even tabletop wargames, war comics were seen as a boy's thing. Um, and that kind of treatment of female characters was shrugged off. We have moved past that.
I think as a community we have learned. Um, and although there's, there's still resistance and there's still complaints, and although I would still say that there is still plenty of room within the industry for, for cheesecake treatments of male and female bodies, I think when a game sees that as the only way of treating a female character, it says something about the designers that maybe, as a player, we wouldn't want to be associated with. So, whilst I still absolutely rate Paolo as an artist and, and can absolutely see the appeal of the Dust 1947 setting, I think some of those aesthetic choices have not necessarily served it well as a property that has got longevity in the 2020s and beyond. So, all of that comes to the fact that Dust Studios is gone. And that was a long introduction, uh, because I do want to talk some more in this episode about so what? What is it that we as wargamers, or I as a small independent developer in wargaming, can learn from the experience of Dust Studios? What do they do right? What do they do well? What do they not do not so well? Uh, what do they do courageously? What did they do with a little bit of cowardice? Uh, and what can we take away from this? I think the first lesson that I'm going to take away from Dust 1947, and I would say I, I would roll up Conflict 47 with the same lesson, is that a, an approach, an alternative history approach to World War II isn't just possible without Nazis, it's actually better without Nazis for all kinds of reasons. So, do you know what? It is possible to do World War II style wargaming, with or without sci-fi elements, and not have to include the Nazis. I'm just going to put that out there and say, we can do that. Perhaps the more important message I'm going to take away from this, though, is that intellectual property is valuable, and it's powerful. And the thing that Paolo did with his intellectual property to make it super powerful was to add art. Masses of art. I know his characters and his stories and his settings were really interesting and really compelling and told, told some exciting, pulpy kind of stories, and, and they're great. But what really made his IP stand out from the others was the fact that he is a really good imaginative artist, who threw a lot of time and energy and his own money at developing this story and creating tons of art. And what that makes is a really valuable property, because it doesn't just come with the setting, it comes with all of these really usable assets, all of these art concepts that can be turned into associated products. So IP is valuable, IP is powerful, but IP plus art is super powerful. And that is worth taking away to, to any small operator, any small business, micro-enterprise in, in miniatures wargaming. Your IP is valuable, but your IP plus art, and art doesn't just have to mean two-dimensional art, three-dimensional sculpts, actual miniatures, even old-school green stuff sculpts. You know, all of that stuff is powerful IP, and it makes your intellectual property more valuable. 
The problem with IP though, right now, for people like me, for people like Paolo, for even people like Asmodee, is that little intellectual properties, original IPs, are being forced out of the market. The big IP holders are really flexing their muscles and have been for the last few years in a way that is really diminishing the quality of our, uh, our available options. Not just as miniatures wargamers, not just as board gamers, but as cultural consumers. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, I love 40k, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Batman. You know, I, I'm a big consumer and fan and enthusiast for all of these intellectual properties, but companies like Warner and Disney and Games Workshop are now realizing their ability to leverage the power uh, of those intellectual properties to dominate markets that they haven't previously been able to dominate. Classic example is Marvel Crisis Protocol. Now, there have been some really interesting, really exciting tabletop miniatures war games for superhero wargaming for a long time. I mean, I just look at something like Pulp City, for example. You know, really fun, really interesting take on the idea of classic comic book superheroes in a miniatures war game. And Pulp City has done okay but it's never really grabbed the community that well. Marvel Crisis Protocol comes along and all of a sudden they can manipulate our market with our natural, very normal human attraction to this very well-established, very well-known intellectual property that means that all of a sudden when people are thinking superhero games, they're thinking Marvel Crisis Protocol. And they're cleverer than that because the Marvel Crisis Protocol miniatures are, of course, 40 mil scale miniatures, which means that not only that, but you can't reuse those miniatures in other superhero games you already own, and you can't repurpose your existing superhero miniatures to play Marvel Crisis Protocol they're closing us down with their intellectual property. Now, there are very good uh, uh, commercial reasons for doing that, and I, I'm not gonna hold the desire to make money against any company, but I do want to draw it to the attention of us as, as a consumer audience, as a market, that we need to be alert to the fact that companies are doing this to our market, and as a result, the market of war games is becoming less interesting as a consequence. You only have to go to any British tabletop miniatures wargaming club and see just how many of those tables are dominated by Games Workshop games to see how dangerous and how constricting this is on a market. And now we've got other companies with even more clout than Games Workshop coming in. We've got the Star Wars games, we've got Harry Potter games, we've got DC games, although Night Models, Batman games, it has to be said, are not a great implementation of the idea. Um, and at some point, DC is going to notice that, by the way. Night models, pay attention. And Marvel Crisis Protocol, good example. They are coming into our market and they are seeking to dominate the tabletops and they are seeking to constrict our choice to intellectual properties that are already well-established and extremely profitable. Uh, and that is going to force our market to become less diverse and less interesting, which I think is an enormous shame. It also means that small owners of IPs like me, of course, have to be very alert to trying to maximize our use of our IPs because we just can't compete with these big people.
The other lesson to learn from Paolo's experience is, well, deal with Chinese manufacturers at your own peril. The list of small tabletop miniatures manufacturers whose enterprises have come a cropper on the rocks of having to deal with Chinese manufacturers is a long one. I can put people like Dreamforge, Wargames Factory, Defiance Games, Corvus Belly even, uh, Warlord Games. They've all had trouble with Chinese manufacturers and it's no coincidence that companies, smart companies like Corvus Belly have gone in very cautiously in their relationships with Chinese manufacturers and even now are exploring the COCAST technology opportunity to bring plastic manufacturing back in-house to their own small business enterprise in Spain. So deal with China at your peril. It doesn't take much in terms of disrupting international distribution to really put your business model at risk and generally if you're not a substantial sized business being able to push back against problems in China is extremely difficult. And finally, maybe it's a small lesson, maybe it's unfair to put this on Paolo. As I say, I respect him very much as an artist, as a creator, but at the end of the day, treat your fellow human beings with the respect that they deserve as fellow human beings. Okay. And then hopefully people will see that respect reflected through your designs, your intellectual property and your games. That's what I'm taking away from this experience. Um, am I sad to see Dust 1947 go away? No, I'll be honest, I'm not sitting here dancing with glee, delighted at the demise of yet another micro-enterprise in the miniatures wargaming industry. No, I'm not. But as a consumer, do I know that there are other similar miniatures ranges out there that I can tap into? Yes. Do I know that there will almost always be alternative World War II dieselpunk sci-fi miniatures wargames to enjoy and play? Yes, I do. And in fact, on that note, I've mentioned Conflict 47 a couple of times. It is a well-established 28mm sci-fi dieselpunk range available from, War Game, uh, sorry, from Warlord Games. But did you know that the origins of that property sit with a company called Clockwork Goblin? They aren't actually all that far from where I am now. And Clockwork Goblin began with a 15mm range scale of alt World War II stuff. Not explicitly designed to work with Battlefront's Flames of War stuff, but again, not explicitly not designed to work with their stuff either. However, when they sort of made their deal with Warlord Games, the 15mm stuff was packed away and not touched again. Until very recently indeed, Clockwork Games have announced that they are re-releasing their 15mm range and they are expanding it. And I believe they're doing so, I'm not sure if it's in partnership with the Plastic Soldier Company, but it is absolutely firmly with one eye on the 15mm plastic miniatures already being made by the Plastic Soldier Company for World War II Wargaming. So if you're into World War II, if you're into alternative World War II, if you're into dieselpunk sci-fi, you absolutely should check out the new miniatures coming very soon from Clockwork Goblin and the stuff from Plastic Soldier Company to go with them. I am not affiliated with either of those companies, I just think that what they do is pretty cool. So like I say, alternative World War II and dieselpunk sci-fi will always be with us. It is sad to see a company like Dust Studios disappearing, but at the end of the day, as consumers, we still have access to the same kind of stuff that they were making, and dare I say, with a little bit less sexism.
So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Precinct Omega podcast, and I will speak to you again next week. Warning. Warning. Docking plants released. Decoupling complete. Thank you for visiting Precinct Omega Star Pharaoh. Safe journeys. Until next time.